Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. And before the episode begins, I would just like to let you know that Be Scared, which is produced along with Studio 71, features scary stories from around the globe on a weekly basis that aim to fuel your nightmares with a smile. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you could hit that subscribe button and drop a review. Thanks for listening, guys. And without further ado, let's begin. Whenever you flush a toilet or wash your hands or basically do anything that involves water in a drain, the leftover stuff ends up where I work. It's an often overlooked necessity of any somewhat large town, although I'd almost argue that it's basically just as important as a police station or a fire brigade. I mean, there'd be no place to live if the ground was basically inundated with shit all the time, right? And that's not even considering the extreme environmental impact. It would just be gross. I've worked at a wastewater treatment facility for about 14 and a half years now. I'd have to say that it's arguably one of the best jobs in the terms of pay and job security. I'd recommend it to more people if the smell of raw sewage wasn't such a turnoff to most. Although, actually, at least in my mind, it's hardly that bad unless you're standing right next to the main intake line that feeds the waste into the bar screen. It's also important to note that if you've had any water from... Well, basically any source, it's probably been through a couple of treatments before. Keep that in mind when taking a nice swig of water after a particularly tough workout or a long day at work. I don't mean to say this to gross anyone out, but frankly, once the water is processed, it's not only clean enough to pump back out into the rivers and the creeks, but it's clean enough to drink. I say basically too, because I don't want to get sued. Please, just don't drink treated wastewater right out of the filters, alright? Anyway, my 14 years have been, well, interesting to say the least, I suppose. Most people, after contorting their faces in disgust after I tell them what my job entails, seem to think that it must be incredibly monotonous and, frankly, they wouldn't be wrong. Well, they would only be slightly wrong. I do have to say that every once in a while, there's something that you find entangled in the bar screen that really leaves you with just a lot of questions. I suppose that uh, I should explain how this whole thing works for the sake of clarification before I go any further. The untreated raw sewage comes in all as a single flow of water. 
A bar screen is the first real filter. It's essentially a, a vertical conveyor belt that consists of several horizontal bars that are spaced far enough from each other to catch anything overly huge. It also does a rather good job at clearing out any inorganic material. Wet wipes, condoms, tampons, wads of paper towels and pieces of plastic are the bulk of what's retrieved in this filter. Its purpose is to take these large and non-organic chunks out of the other bits of the sewage, separate them, and allow the rest of the sewage that continues to be organic, and therefore decomposable. And due to the nature of this filter, most of the strange things that I've found were retrieved there, although some of the stuff has continued on to the next parts. After that, it runs through another sort of filter and a similar process happens, although by using a different method. The water is spun at a specific rate, kind of like in a, a top-loaded washing machine, I suppose you could say, and as gravity does its work, the heavier stuff settles to the bottom. This stuff, which is mostly just poop, is taken to a warehouse on the property, and with the magic of some chemistry, it's turned into some sort of very nutrient-rich blackish clay-like paste. Something like that. It's normally sold to farmers as a better version of manure, and as someone who's used part of it in my own garden, that stuff works better than any miracle grow that I've ever used. Plus, after it's processed, it doesn't even smell like shit anymore, it just kind of smells like wet dirt. After this, the water passes through a bunch of clarifiers, which are basically huge basins. Oxygen is pumped through the water, and as that happens, natural bacteria begin to eat all the nutrients in the poop water until it's clear. This is repeated around three times, at least in my facility, and after it's checked for its purity and sterilized with UV rays, it's released back into the river that runs through town. I always snicker to myself whenever I see people fishing and swimming in that river, but like I said before, it's actually pretty clean. So, now that I'm done explaining everything, I suppose that uh, I should actually start off. So my first freak occurrence happened about uh, a week into the job, I'd say. I was a fresh-faced biochem major, and even though the smell still made me gag at that point, I was determined to move up the ranks. I got the job, thinking that I'd be able to climb the corporate ladder, eventually culminating in me being the head chemist. But this never happened, and my dreams certainly were a bit uh, optimistic to say the least. Anyway, as I drove my shitty Mazda MPV down the dirt road towards the main office, I noticed a huge gathering of people around the main intake channel. I initially thought to ignore this, but then I noticed someone in a white lab coat with a confused expression on his face. The people who worked in the lab almost never visited the actual sewage lines like their general workers did, so this piqued my interest enough for me to check it out myself. As I approached the gathering of people, I could hear an apprehensive tone filling the air as lab technicians and laborers like me all wore worried expressions. I had to push people out of the way in order to actually see what was going on, and to say it shocked me would be a complete understatement. The water looked like a black pitch almost, glassy like obsidian and viscous like molasses. It smelled like burning plastic. And this would have been enough of a conundrum if it weren't for the fact that these weren't the only things. The surface of the water swelled and wriggled, and it took me a moment to realize that there were probably hundreds of thousands of worms squirming under the surface. In fact, as I looked at it more, it seemed that the blackish water was probably just the coating of worms, and as we tried to figure out what the hell was going on, we realized that 
They weren't just on the top of the water. The main channel is about 20 feet deep, and as we tried to separate the masses of worms with a large stick, we discovered that the worms went all the way down to the bottom. Eventually, the main supervisor of the facility told us to all go home and that everything would be fine by the next day. We laughed at him, although, surely enough, by the next shift, everything was back to normal. To say that the majority of my co-workers and I were seriously confounded by this would be uh, doing a disservice to the word, but there was one co-worker of mine that was hardly phased by this at all. I only really worked with this guy for a couple of months, and one day he just didn't show up for work, and ever since then I never actually heard anything about him again. I'm not about to give out his real name, so I'll call him Vasily. He clearly wasn't from here. His thick Slavic accent was enough to give that away almost immediately. He told us that he was from Kiev and that he moved here with his wife and three kids, although I never once heard him talk about them at all. He certainly was quite the character, and even though this sounds really mean, I tried to avoid him unless it was absolutely necessary for me to talk to him. I wasn't alone in my aversion of him, though, too. In fact, the people who I worked with referred to him as the vampire due to his unfortunate and uncanny resemblance to the monster in Nosferatu. His head was bald, and his face was so angular it looked like his cheekbones were cut out of stone. His eyes were so dark brown that they almost looked totally black, and his trademark wide-eyed almost predatory gaze felt piercing enough to bore holes into you. He was around 6'6", and his whole body was just uh, really long. He reminded me of uh, an arachnid, if I'm being honest. His mannerisms, too, didn't really help his cause. He was the type of person to just kind of stand just a little too close and make a little bit too much eye contact during a conversation. And every once in a while, I would spot him staring at me as I worked on something by myself. But despite this, he actually was fairly harmless and was quite the hard worker, too. Part of me had a suspicion that he was on the spectrum or something, and I kind of felt really bad for him. I even planned to work up the courage to try and get him invited with the rest of my co-workers to hit some bars one night, although he politely refused the offer and waved his veiny hand away, claiming that he didn't like beer. Since I was new, my only experiences with him were basically ones after the whole worm thing, but according to my co-workers, he acted much stranger and much happier than normal after the accident. One of them, let's call him Travis, even heard him laughing his head off near the main intake channel during a night shift right before it happened. Of course, he eventually packed his shit and left without any sort of notice, which prompted the supervisor to call the police. He was never, ever late, and my boss feared that something had happened to him. Once the police broke into the studio apartment that he lived in, they found nothing. All the rooms were empty, and it was like nobody had ever lived there. Travis actually accompanied the cops on their wellness check, and he claimed that while he was inside of Vaisley's apartment, that there was just the faintest smell of a burning plastic. Although, I admit that Travis was always the type to embellish things. In the weeks and months and years after this, my co-workers and I did our best to try and rationalize this as much as possible. Adrian, the one in the only tech labs who ever talked to the general workers, theorized that the black sludge was somehow a diluted form of the fertilizer that we make. 
He hypothesized that there was some sort of runoff, and as the nutrient-rich solution mixed with and thickened the sewage flowing through the main intake channel, worms and the surrounding dirt swam in to eat the poop and the dirt mix. It was a theory that my co-workers and I just kind of had to accept in the end. I mean, looking back, it was so full of shit, but we had to believe something. Of course, not everything that I've found has been so strange, although these things are still really unexplainable. But one time, while I was monitoring the bar screen, I noticed that it was uh, almost straining, like it was carrying a really, really heavy load. And upon further investigation, I found out that it was carrying a really heavy load. It was a fucking bowling ball. A 16-pound bowling ball. I really, really don't know how someone managed to fit an entire fucking bowling ball into the sewage system, but there it was, all shiny despite the fact that it was coated in a thick layer of last night's dinner, and we still have the ball in fact. It actually sits in the room where the bar screen can be watched next to the poop money jar. I think that the title of the jar is pretty self-explanatory. When I first joined, it was around $522, and now it's at around $876. As you can probably guess too, the bar screen room is my primary position in the facility, since even though all of our noses are desensitized, I can actually stand the smell of the poo for hours and hours on end, a feat which most people who work here aren't exactly able to do without getting a, a little bit of fresh air at least. It might seem silly too, but my position is important for several reasons. Mainly, it's just a good safeguard to make sure the screen is actually working. If, for whatever reason, the screen malfunctions, the flow needs to be redirected immediately. If any of the stuff that normally gets filtered out ends up stuck in the basins or in the pumps, blockages can form, and when you're dealing with thousands of gallons a minute, you cannot have any sort of blockages. My job also serves a, a secondary purpose, though. Criminals tend to flush evidence down the toilet if law enforcement is on their trail, and it's our job to recover said evidence and report the items to the police. I've probably uncovered untold amounts of weed and thousands of crack pipes during my 14-year tenure. There's a normal amount of this stuff found pretty much every year, but I noticed that there was a sharp increase during the years of 2008 and 2010. Obviously, this lines up with the recession, and as a result of increased poverty and unemployment, our area, which already isn't really a white picket fence suburb, had a dramatic crime increase. I didn't actually feel much of the pain of an economic slump, though, since the city is always going to need people to deal with the sewage, but I certainly realized it to be true when I discovered that my MPV was missing one morning. To be fair, I did leave the windows open, but never in my right mind did I think that anyone would want to steal that old hunk of shit. I was wrong, though. But all of this really did culminate in one event, though. So, I had arrived in my new Civic this time, and as I made my post, and prepared myself for another day of watching the screen filter stuff out, I noticed that there were a couple of brownish boxes that were bundled in tape. But they floated at the top of the sewage, and as I watched one after another swim by, I made sure to radio in the supervisor. We recovered 40 little boxes of this stuff, and surprise, surprise, they were kilos of cocaine. Some people from the DEA arrived, and they tried desperately to figure out where the kilos came from. Although, by the time they arrived to us, the poopers degraded everything to a point that no arrest could be made from cocaine that we found. 
But they told us, though, that the stuff was between $795,000 and $1.2 million worth. But there was a notable police presence on the site for about a week after the incident, too. I suppose that they were trying to see if any more kilos revealed themselves, but it was all to no avail. This annoyed me at first, since they made an officer sit right next to me during every shift, and it was kind of frustrating to hear someone continuously complain about the smell for hours on end. But eventually, the cops gave up, and they left the site with empty hands, which was really damn convenient, because about six days after they left, I found something else. And it wasn't a kilo of cocaine. Apartments.com believes that a dishwasher does more than just clean plates. It turns your whole place into a time machine by turning the time that you would have spent washing dishes into extra time for you. That could mean more time to read, more time to knit, or more time to contemplate the vastness of time itself. With Apartments.com, finding somewhere to live with an elusive dishwashing slash time-expanding device is easy. Apartments.com hosts the most rental listings with over 1 million available units. And with comprehensive search tools and instant alerts, you never have to worry about missing out on the perfect place. To find whatever you're searching for and more, visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The news was all over the city too and search efforts were widespread. A blonde-haired, fair-skinned eight-year-old girl was drawing with some chalk in her front yard when she seemingly vanished out of thin air. But there were no leads, no evidence, and only one real witness. But one person, though, thought that they saw an unfamiliar bay Chevy Astro speeding through the neighborhood in which the girl I lived around the time of disappearance, but that was all the detectives had. I remember watching the news during this, and since I have a bit of interest in true crime, I followed it extensively. I watched as this father of this little girl just got thinner and thinner with each news appearance and I can still hear how broken his voice sounded when he begged whoever took his little sweetheart to give her back safely. Eventually the news stopped running stories about the little girl and I just assumed that whatever had happened was done and that she was already dead. She had been missing for about five months in fact when I found it. It was a heavy dark blue comforter and as I put it aside and inspected it, I realized that it was covered in some dark brownish stain that wasn't feces. As I unfolded the blanket and felt around it, my fingers brushed something kind of hard and as I scrutinized the small hard bits, they looked like little white pebbles and unsure of what to do, I radioed my supervisor again who called the police. 
I was rather unamused at this, and if anything, they'd been snooping around the facility again, and that was something that I really didn't look forward to. On the other hand, though, the blanket was seriously out of place, and I knew that something was really wrong with this. My fears were confirmed, too, when I saw detectives from the FBI canvassing the whole place a couple of days later. Interrogation rooms really have some sort of magic that just makes you feel like you're guilty of something, even when you're not. I'd have to say that those three hours were some of the worst in my life, and as a stern-faced man in a suit questioned me, I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt my stomach drop, too, even further when they told me about the nature of their questioning. The stain was predictably blood, which isn't really something that causes too much of an alarm for me. I mean, tampons obviously exist, and sometimes you genuinely just cut yourself on an accident. Not every bloodstain is murder, after all. But it was what they told me next which made me feel really sick. Those little white pebbles were identified as teeth. Teeth that most likely came from a child's mouth. DNA evidence proved that the blood and the teeth belonged to a little eight-year-old girl who had indeed gone missing a couple of months ago. There was also an unidentified male whose DNA was found on the blanket. One of the tags was still on the comforter and it was traced back to a purchase in 2006 by a realtor and a mother of three. When she was questioned, she claimed that she had given the blanket to her youngest son after he moved out of the house. Of course, he was questioned next, and from what I've heard about the case, that sick son of a bitch barely lasted 30 minutes before he admitted to everything. Even if he said nothing, they already had a good case on this guy. His DNA matched the unknown male's DNA, and the little girl's hair was found in his garage and on his clothes. He had sold a bay Chevy Astro on Craigslist about two months prior to his arrest, and his new car had traces of her blood just all over it. He eventually told them where the body was, on the condition that he would escape the death penalty, and eventually they did find her. She was buried under a massive oak tree in a forest preserve 20 miles away from the treatment facility. By the time the cops found her, she was already mostly decomposed, but they were able to tell how she died, and by using dental records, they found out that the teeth in the blanket matched her as well. She had several stab wounds to the chest and a post-mortem blunt injury to her face, which knocked out her teeth. There was also a great deal of internal trauma. The man had raped her several times and kept her locked in the house for a couple of months before finally killing her. According to his own testimony, she had tried to escape and, in a fit of rage, he stabbed her 14 times and then wrapped her corpse in a blue comforter. The killer said that, during a particular harsh turn, her body slid and slammed into the right side door handle in the back seat, busting her face open. He eventually buried her in the closest wooded area and then tossed the blanket into a nearby stream. He was smart enough to know that his best bet was to cast the blanket as far away from her actual burial site in order to distance the evidence as much as possible. What he didn't know though was that the stream was actually used as a wastewater channel from a car factory and that it led directly to me. I think almost half of the people working at the facility at the time quit, simply due to the media circus and the fact that there was some sort of inexorable secondhand guilt that permeated through us. I remember too, for the very first time, just feeling that I was totally useless. I thought back to my initial reaction and hated myself for it. 
that some girl had just fucking died and I was a bit more concerned about cops being a headache. I actually had to testify in court along with a couple other of my co-workers and as a result we got to watch the whole trial. The little girl's father looked like a skeleton at this point and his eyes were just always glinting with tears. I just couldn't possibly imagine what he was going through. The guy got his wish though and instead of being sentenced to death he was given life without the opportunity of parole. Ever since then, my co-workers and I just rarely do anything outside of work because it's just uh, demoralizing now, at least for me I suppose. Although I guess there are other reasons for our chemistry being really bad, especially after what happened last year. Travis had always been the jovial type and frankly he pretty much was the only person who kept my spirits out of the gutters for too long. Without him I really don't know what I would have done after the murder. Of course, he was still the type to tell a couple of white lies every once in a while, so when he told me that he was having a son, I really didn't believe him at first. It wasn't until he showed me the photo of his wife's ultrasound that I was really happy for him. Frankly, it was a nice turn for the positive, all things considered. He named his son Blake, and oh my fucking goodness, he just never stopped talking about Blake for about a year and a half after he was born. Of course, I was genuinely happy for him, but the man knew how to talk and talk for hours, I tell you. After about a year and a half, though, I noticed that he just didn't bring up Blake nearly as much. I attributed this to the fact that me had finally run out of things to tell us and wrote it off as unimportant. Every year, we also have a bring your kids to work day. It's a holiday that is normally only honored by the people who work in the labs. Even if I had a kid, I would never want my kid sitting next to me in the bar screen room, which is why it was a surprise that Travis was actually going to bring his kid over. I remember when he told us that his son had a keen interest in seeing what we did here, and I remember thinking it was a joke, but I stopped that when, for the very first time, I noticed that he almost looked nervous. As the day got closer, though, I could tell that he was worried about it, and it certainly did weird me out a bit that Travis, of all people, would be so uncomfortable. I initially attributed his fear to the fact that he was scared about what his kid would think of the place, but when the day actually arrived, I understood why he was so scared. There was a reason why he didn't really say much about his son. I watched as Blake rocked back and forth and flapped his hands fervently, occasionally making a strange noise or hitting himself in the head. For this reason, he wore a dark blue helmet which shielded him from his own blows. He was wearing a weighted vest and he clutched a yellow bunny doll in his left hand. I knew this array of symptoms well because, well, mainly since I've seen them in my own sister. I could tell that Travis was incredibly scared. He undoubtedly felt all of the eyes on him and his son and I began to feel really horrible. A part of me almost wanted to try and convince the supervisor to not allow this, for Travis's own sake. He looked almost sick as he waved to us, trying and failing to sound like his normal cheery self as his son hit himself in the face. Travis was experiencing a great deal of embarrassment and it was just uh, awful to watch, even if from afar. Although, I didn't voice this concern obviously. Blake could have been autistic, but he was still a young boy and Travis was his father and Travis wanted to take his son to work as a nice gesture. And damn it, he should be allowed to do so. 
I think it was about six hours into my shift when I heard the radio call. The day was painfully normal, despite the fact that I noticed little kids walking all over the place with their fathers in tow, but that all changed really damn quick. It was Travis on the other end, and he sounded like he had just seen a ghost. He was bent over, wrenching on something, and when he looked back, Blake was just gone. We all mobilized as much as possible and began to scan the whole facility. I even remember giving Travis a playful punch in an attempt to calm him down. I mean, we'd find him soon. Of course we would. And we did find him eventually. He was in one of the secondary clarifiers. It turns out that bacteria that decomposes poop also does a good job of decomposing people. And even though poor Blake was probably only in there for a good 40 minutes, he had already started to bloat. It took another 10 minutes before he was finally retrieved from the large pool of murky water. I did my best not to look and I just tried to shut my eyes, but my morbid curiosity got the better of me and as they pulled a white sheet over Blake's head, I spotted a now brown bunny still clutched into his left hand. On some nights, I'll hear the way Travis screamed that day and it'll just wake me up and keep me up too. I've heard some terrible things in my life, but hearing him beg God to give his son back, that by far is the worst. I'm convinced that there's no greater pain for a parent or for anyone than losing their child after hearing that. We all watched the security cam footage and I felt my stomach churn as I watched a small figure walk up to the clarifier. As he walked along the balcony that's above the water, he dropped his little stuffed animal and as it sank into the turbid water, he jumped in after it. Blake was seven years old, he had autism and he couldn't swim. Couple this with the fact that he was wearing a weighted vest in order to keep him calm and... You can picture what happened next. He just sank like a rock. It almost pained me more when I noticed a large figure walking near the clarifier after Blake had sunk. It was Travis looking around wildly. This was about three minutes after Blake sank and if Travis knew where his son was, he could have actually saved him pretty easily. Obviously, Travis didn't really come back to work for a while after that and so I was tasked with covering a shift, something that I was honestly happy to do. Travis normally worked at night monitoring the clarifiers, making sure that airflow, temperature and nutrient content all looked right. I wasn't terribly experienced at this but I figured that I'd eventually get the hang of it and after a while I was good enough to be left alone without someone watching me and as Travis recovered psychologically I found my new home at the clarifiers. I specifically avoided the clarifier in which Blake drowned, only going over the balcony quickly before going into the control room to check on how the levels were. I probably did this for two months until Travis finally got well enough to come back to work. And by that time, I mean that he didn't break down crying whenever he stepped foot into the facility. If it were me, I, I would have just quit, but Travis had been working here since he was 18 and for longer than me. This was basically his whole life and it's easier said than done to just up and move on, I guess. Every time that he worked the clarifiers, he still made me check on the one that his son died in. He might have pulled himself together enough to work, but he certainly was not all okay up in his head. 
Understandably, too, his whole demeanor changed, and he went from being the class clown to being almost as withdrawn as the vampire. The change made me feel quite bad for him, although each time I tried to talk to him, he was just aloof and uncaring. I stopped really trying to talk to him after a while. I mean, I just figured that he'd want his space, and all things considered, I'd give him his space gladly. I think it was this space that I gave him mentally that allowed me not to break down when I heard the news too that he had taken his own life. I've always hated funerals but I think I hated this one the most simply due to the fact that the whole event was just stained with Travis's guilt. His wife almost reminded me of the little girl's father and his whole family just looked horrible Pretty much everyone I worked with attended, even most of the lab techs showed up. Our supervisor gave him a eulogy and I really did my best to say a couple of nice things about him, although my words were broken and softly spoken. I remember vomiting too and passing out as soon as I got home and when I woke up I just drank myself back to sleep again. The whole thing was just so wrong on so many levels. Travis was probably one of my best friends at this point and he was always just such a good spirited person. But the fact that he was the one who was dealt the short stick in the game of life was just so unfair. Once again though I was the one who had to cover his place until we could find and train someone to cover his spot again. The facility felt empty without him and I just hated every second of my job because of it but I did continue on. Travis would have been disappointed if I left now. Eventually, I got accustomed to the absence, and even though it still felt wrong, I think I just got used to it. That was until the month anniversary of his death. I was in the control room, monitoring the clarifiers like normal, when I noticed one of the secondary clarifiers had a rather strange alert. The temperature was reading 35 Fahrenheit. But just as a bit of background, the actual night air was 75 Water is normally colder than air, that's not too unusual, but 40 whole degrees colder? That was unheard of. I initially suspected a faulty sensor, but I then remembered that we had them replaced no longer than three months prior and the sensors that we have can last for decades. But the air was muggy and it roused a bit of sweat on my face as I ran over to the clarifier in which Blake had drowned. I knew something was going on when I noticed that all the lights around it were off. I clicked on a flashlight and pressed on, breathing heavily as I climbed up the metal stairs and I got myself onto the balcony. I ran along the metal grate floor towards the temperature sensor and as the beam of the flashlight bounced around I saw just the slightest hint of yellow in the water. I aimed the flashlight at the yellow and I felt sick to my stomach because... It was a yellow bunny rabbit doll floating in the water. I whipped the flashlight all over the place and spotted more and more of the bunnies, their black button eyes staring at me. I think I screamed, but as I did, I could feel the grated metal underneath my feet begin to crumble. Our facility is about 50 years old. The balconies were rusted quite a bit, but they never really seemed weak or unsafe to stand on. I remember how cold the water was and how the murkiness just swallowed up any sort of vision that I could have had underneath the water. The balcony was about 15 feet above the actual surface of the water and so when I hit it, it disorientated me quite considerably and knocked the breath out of me. I realized that I didn't know which way was up anymore and as my diaphragm tensed up in shock, 
I began to flail my arms all around, doing my best to get my bearings fruitlessly. Eventually, after my body began to hunger oxygen even more than before, I just went limp and left my body float up with the bubbles of air. I took a deep breath as I surfaced, and I hurriedly swam to the edge of the basin. Once I was back on dry land, I peered out into the clarifier again, and all of the yellow bunnies were gone. After a couple of days, all of the balconies were replaced with new ones, in order to prevent such a thing from happening again, and the temperature sensor was replaced too, although it was found to be in perfect working order when they looked at it. It was safe to say, though, that my position was considerably cushier than before, after the incident, because during my struggle to escape, I really fucked up my hand on some brick, and considering that I was swimming in poop water, I wasn't shocked when it got infected a day later. In an attempt to keep me from suing, they bumped up my pay and cut my hours a bit, not that any of it really mattered to me. And that was 11 months ago, and today... After a long time coming, I finally put in my two weeks notice. Frankly, I should have quit a long time ago, I know. I wasn't really moving up in the corporate ladder like I'd anticipated and now that Travis was dead and the job was just depressing, I really had no reason to stay. And that's all ignoring all the fucked up shit that happens here too. I only work on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Some people work here six days a week, ten hours a day. I really do wonder if they've seen anything else. And I'm fairly certain that they may have. But right now, I'm basically planning to move to a different, smaller treatment facility. But with my knowledge here, I think a smaller place would be a bit nicer. I just hope that I can distance myself as much as possible, although I know that that's basically impossible at this point. Because every single time that I drink some water or flush my toilet or basically do anything, I know where that water came from and where it's going to return. I know that it's been laced with worms, cocaine and murder evidence. I know that in a way... All of the refuse of society, just like the refuse that was defecate, has ended up where I worked. And now, you do too. Plus, I've noticed that my apartment now smells like burning plastic, for some reason. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Be Scared Podcast. And please, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode too. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could share this new podcast with your friends and family and on social media too. Thanks again for listening, guys, and I'll see you mates in the next one. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.